Welcome to The Past Less Traveled. I'm Brandon Delvo, where we do history differently. History usually involves alcohol, bad or good decisions, and things that may make you feel uncomfortable. I've been a living historian for over 15 years, history major, enthusiast, and all-around history nerd. I also bring to the table over 10 years of military experience. Here we go beyond the usual dates, names, and places of the past. We go into the stories that may connect you to the bigger historical events, or just a conversation about history over a beer, or two, or three, with everything from experts, living historians, and enthusiasts. This is the Past Less Traveled History Podcast. Um, Let me, yep, okay, we're good. So uh, this is where we do history differently, and I'm Brandon Delbo, your host. Um, you might have heard me many times on uh, the Anchor app or whatever app you get your uh, your podcasts on. Well, now you can actually uh, see my face and a face that's made for radio. So, <laughs> but uh, I kind of wanted to talk for the month of June. I mean, we just got through Memorial Day. And if you haven't tuned into uh, the Memorial Day episode that I did with Rory Cowan and his brother Cody, please go ahead and check that out and, and many others. Um, but really, once Memorial Day is done, we really get into the tourism season. And with tourism season, for a lot of us that do living history, this is also like, there's like a good 90 to 100 day window where we do many different events covering many different eras. So I wanted to uh, have a good friend of mine on. Um, it'll probably also now be called the Brandon and Brandon Show. Um, <laughs> so I have with me- B&B. Say what? Oh, B squared? <laughs> yeah, B squared. <laughs> so I have with me uh, Brandon Lewis from Cody, Wyoming, uh, well-known living historian. Uh, you're a member of a lot of different groups. So I don't, I don't know about well-known, but <laughs> I, I think you're pretty well-known. I mean, between, you know, the authentic campaigner and everything else. I mean, nah. <laughs> yeah. no, I, I, I'm just, I'm that guy that shows up to events and has a good time. <laughs> Well, we all do, or we we just embrace the suck for, you know, a couple of days, depending on the weather. Definitely. Sometimes I always like to think like, uh, we're, we're kind of like that, uh, what is it, like Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, when Kirk and Spock are talking, they're like, we've been through life and death together. And I'm like, Brandon and I, we've been through rain and rusty muskets together. <laughs> yeah, yes, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for coming on, Brandon. I really appreciate it. Um, feel free to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what really got you into history. What got you involved in eventually going maybe from, you know, just having kind of an interest in history to really taking that leap into doing living history? Sure. Um, I've always been interested in history um, ever since I was real, real young. Um, and we grew up in well, I grew up in northeastern Colorado uh, before it was a solid block of houses. Um, we had a feedlot there. Always just loved reading and going to the museums that were in the area uh, in Fort Collins and down in Denver and in Loveland and, and just about everywhere and just checking out all the books. And um, I started with uh, the Middle Ages and Knights in Armor and got to go to some tournaments uh, when I was young, my parents took me to a Ren Fair, and that was awesome. And just seeing all the sites and, and seeing everything in person. Um, and then I always was interested in the West. I kind of transitioned to, okay, well, this was really cool to read about. 
And now I started paying more attention to what actually was around me. It may not have been very specific at such a young age, but I always wanted to read more about the Cowboys and the Indians and, and what went on um, in our area, because you could look out on the prairie and see the same thing uh, at that time. <laughs> and um, eventually, um, as more and more houses kind of expanded, they weren't too fond of a feedlot in their area. And so we got pushed up um, by the housing developments into Wyoming. Um, and so we had a feedlot up there and, and grew up and I moved right next to Fort Laramie National Historic Site. And uh, I was reading more and more about the Civil War by that point and, you know, had seen Gettysburg and, and that kind of ignited a lot of, of my interest as well, of course. But um, I got to visit Fort Laramie National Historic Site and it really just you know, it ignited the spark right then and there. And I, it was kind of funny because I went up to the person that worked the front desk and I said, I want to work here one day. And um, it, it was one of those like really weird misunderstandings because the gal working the front desk would kind of did one of those where she like leaned down and was like, oh, well, you have to be at least 16 in order to get, you know, a full-time job here, but good on you. And I was so mad that they didn't understand. It's like, no, I, I want to work here one day. And so anyway, I, I was reading more and more about some of the history in the region. Um, my family took me on a trip to Gettysburg. And so I got my first uniform there. Uh, wasn't very good. It was pretty farby, but it was uh, enough that it was like, yeah, you know what? This is something that's pretty awesome. I can dress up and I can just run around in the field and do whatever, having a great time. But um, then as I got a little older through uh, middle school and high school, I got an internship to work at Fort Laramie um, for part time for the summer as a seasonal there. And I got to dip my toes in a little bit of public interpretation. Um, so I got to do uh, as a volunteer, of course, uh, in the off season, we got to do the living history events for moonlight tours and uh, Christmas. And they had a Halloween event they did for a while, the ghost tours. And then of course, Memorial Day was when they, all the parks would really kick off this, the summer tourist season. And then you'd be busy all summer um, doing public interpretation and so forth. And so I uh, got, got lucky enough that um, I, I really, I knew I wanted to do this as a job. Um, and in between in the summertime, that was perfect as a seasonal, I could get hired, I can talk to people and just dress up and be a, a tour guide to them or a park guide. Um, and so I, for one summer, I got to work maintenance, mowing lawns on the parade ground and, and taking care of uh, all the machinery and stuff. And then on weekends, I would volunteer with the interp staff. I had a lot of friends in there at the time. Um, so we got to hang out and have a great time. And then uh, the, the following season, I was asked if I wanted to be a, uh, a park guide for the summer um, through the student. At the time, it was the STEP program, the Student Temporary Employment Program. Uh, and that's really what I'm very fortunate to have been a part of. Uh, I ended up working there indirectly about seven years or so between volunteering and then actually working as a park guide at the site there. And um, I learned a lot more. There's a whole new world to it. Um, you're not just dressing up and goofing around. Anyone can do that. But what you really are, are and what I really enjoyed doing was conveying information to the public about all the amazing things that happened at that historic site. 
Um, so, you know, the westward expansion and you had all these different types of peoples come together at this military post, um, depending on what area you're talking about, fur trade or a military post. And you just have this mass of information that now I have to try to tell stories of of all of this that I've been able to read throughout the summer. And of course, a perk of the job was being able to read when there wasn't anyone to talk to. So that was really, really nice. Um, so uh, I got my feet uh, in the door there. I got to meet some people and, uh, and start getting my uh, experience doing living history and um, got to do Civil War reenactments for the 150th cycles. Um, so it was a neat uh, way to get my foot in the door. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have a little confession to make. I hit the record button on this a little late. So um, okay. just for the sake of audio, and if anybody is uh, just tuning in, I have Brandon Lewis with me, been a good friend of mine for many years, Cody Wyoming. We we're just kind of talking a little bit about kind of how, how you got involved in history and, 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 and how your interest grew over time. And, and you kind of, I mean, walked you know a little bit of that those steps you know you're talking about doing maintenance and then you know a lot of volunteering and then um doing some seasonal work too um a, another friend of ours Leif Halverson um just started yesterday doing his I think his what seventh tour is a seasonal out at Fort Union Trading Post so um you know it's definitely um we would all love to do this full time but we all you know come from different working backgrounds and stuff. I mean, what, what are you doing now for, for work again, for, for those that might not know? Yeah. So I work over at the Buffalo Bills Center of the West over in Cody, Wyoming, and uh, a big jump from being a park guide with the National Park Service. Um, I was wanting to be a zookeeper one day, and uh, I kept getting drawn back to the public interpretation and doing programs. I just enjoyed it too much. Um, and so uh, I got my degrees. I have two degrees in history and zoology. And so I got an internship here um, working with their live raptor program, their birds of prey show. Uh, and so I've been with them since they started. And I was lucky enough to get my foot in the door through an internship again. And then I got hired uh, full time as the assistant. So that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years or so. Um, and we're just educating all the visitors that are going in and out of Yellowstone about all of the birds of prey that they have been seeing or they're going to see in the region. You used to be, uh, for those that don't know, the uh, it, it, the only guy I ever know that has taken more selfies with with birds of prey. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I go you're, scroll through my Facebook one day and here's Brandon Lewis with a bald eagle right there. And, you know what I mean? You just see the size of the talons on him. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think too, I mean, you even incorporated a little bit of your work in um, one of your living history um interpretations of what was that old abe the the eighth was the mascot of the eighth wisconsin infantry yep yep uh i i always try to take advantage of those moments where the science and the history overlap and just it, it's a lot more fun for me that way so um we always are educating about the wildlife in the region and we have one of uh the several birds that are part of our program. Um, they're all permanently non-releasable. And so uh, we had a juvenile bald eagle at the time. He grew up with us. He's, he's a little older now, but uh, I was able to work with him. I was training with him and I asked my boss if it'd be all right if I dressed up and I got to hold him. And I kind of held the camera, had him take photos in ways that you don't see all the modern safety equipment and stuff that's 
used in, in working with these birds up close. Uh, but uh, I, I got to do a nice presentation on Old Abe, who was the mascot of the 8th Wisconsin Infantry in the Civil War, uh, who was the juvenile bald eagle. And he spent uh, their three-year enlistment um, going through several engagements. Um, and it was the papers loved him in the Western Theater. And he uh, worked his way down into outside of Vicksburg. Um, so, uh, and then they retired him. He got, uh, when the, the veterans were mustered out, uh, the new recruits came down and then the veterans were basically shipped home. Old Abe went with them. And so I got to do uh, the research and look at all these primary documents. Um, they actually have a really nice library for research over at the center of the West as well. And so I used those library connections and I got some stuff on loan from other libraries across the region and back East. And I was able to piece together um, some really cool stories about Old Abe and the unit that he was with. Just the fact that Old Abe went through all those engagements. I mean, there's that well-known Don Trioni painting I believe of them going into Vicksburg and, and, you know, they have him like literally shackled to a staff and the boots yeah. are moving. I mean, and, and you got, you know, probably just the cacophony of what a battlefield is, you know, shot and shell and uh, men yelling and screaming. And, and just the fact that th this bird <laughs> essentially survived all these engagements when you just look at the, just the, I mean, not so much the death and destruction of, individuals that take place in war but I mean wildlife I mean and then just what happens to the environment itself um oh yeah it's just an amazing story in and of itself um and, and you you talked a little bit about um there at the center of the west having a really good research facility to do those things I think that's really important too that there's, I mean, one nice thing about technology is we literally within a matter of a few clicks of a mouse can access, you know, everything from like post returns, um, which uh -huh. you can also, I just learned from Casey Beck, you can get those on Ancestry. Um, yeah. Call me a novice, but <laughs> he, he spent a lot of time with me in the, in the vehicle going to Last Letter Home, um, talking to me about how all that works. But I mean, yeah, just the fact that you have all this technology now where you can access all these databases and all this information like that just opens up a whole new arm of, of really getting deep into, you know, maybe doing an interpretation or, you know, getting into more primary source type um, things within history itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of a continuation of what we were talking about earlier, where, you know, public interpretation is great. You can talk to the public about anything, but, you have to have a little bit of focus and direction with it as well. Um, and it has to be well researched. Um, you can't just cite something off the top of your head. It's as much as, you know, it's nice to do that, but in, in to do it well, in my opinion, I think you should remember what sources you're talking about because that can make all the difference of like, oh, if someone wants to know more and they ask you, hey, where did you learn that? If you answer, I, I don't remember, uh, if at least tell them, I'll get back to you, let me look it up. Yeah. Uh, and so then you can point them in the right direction. And so it's not just this abstract fact that's floating around that turns into myth. And then, you know, what else from there? But um, so uh, it, having access to those primary resources, secondary sources to kind of back up the overall narrative to flush out those thoughts and ideas. So you're a little more um, well read about the subject 
really can make the difference. And then you can interpret that to visitors to a historic site or um, at a program at a local library or your park or whatever happens to be the, the venue. Yeah. Um, I know uh, when we first met back in 2015 doing the Fort Casper event, you, you, you kind of sparked on something that, or a philosophy that I always took into events um, that has been carried on, especially maybe in more of the progressive type campaigner uh, elements of, of living history. I mean, not so much like civil war, but you know, you get more into like American mountain men for fur trade, but, um, and that's really a philosophy of, I mean, the general public might not know if we have like, for example, the proper four button sack coat or, you know, the, the, the same um, JT Martin, you know, style of trousers. But I mean, we know that. And that's something I've always kind of taken to heart is you might not know it, but if I'm doing it right and I'm conveying it right, then I mean, word of mouth is a powerful thing. We're yeah. social creatures at, at our base level. And those people are going to go home and talk to their, their spouse or a relative or something. And if it's done properly, and like you said, with the right primary sources and those uh, secondary sources to back that up, that is where we can really turn around some of the narrative at times. Um, and I'm going to kind of segue into something where um, I know you and, and a bunch of other fellow living historians um, have been doing it right. Um, but one thing that you were talking about a little bit of the myth um, that that is always added to that myth has always been Hollywood. I mean, going way back. I mean, I you knew we were going to go there. So, I mean, people think of, you know, Fort Union, like Trading Post, for example, you see four walls and a bastion. And I swear a lot of people go right to Fort Apache, John Wayne, where's the soldiers? I mean, how yeah. many times have we seen old movies where... I mean, Fort Buford up in Dakota, you know, outside of Wilson, North Dakota, you see a mountain range in the background. Well, there's no mountains for five, like 500 miles. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's, um, what is the phrase I'm looking for? It's deceivingly flat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I can't remember what movie that was, but then, I mean, you have the element of the people that go along with, I mean, like what I call the little big man narrative. I mean, yeah. little big man has its place in Hollywood. I mean, it's, it's enjoyable entertainment. Don't get me wrong. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, people got to take into account the time that that movie was made. I mean, the 1960s had a big effect on just history in general. So that's something that people got to, you know, keep in mind when they're watching this. And, and I mean, and if you ever need to go deeper into things, like you can access things. I mean, you know, we were talking about like the 8th Wisconsin earlier. Um, the Wisconsin Historical Society has a great database. That's how we found stuff on like the 30th Wisconsin Infantry when uh, uh -huh. like you and Neil Jones and some other uh, individuals came up to Fort Union for that event in 2016. I mean, we had all that information right there. So yeah, that, that's always uh, really helpful. But uh, we were talking a little bit before we got started, you know, if we're going to still talk about Hollywood, you have your one of your uh, glorious debuts of uh, the famous Sergeant Miles O'Hara at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, um, which yep. for those that don't know, you can look up, you can look up this film um, that's soon to come out, I hope, on uh, YouTube and you can see uh, 
see your moment of fame, but I mean, go ahead and talk a little bit about, I mean, not maybe the projects you've been currently working on, but even some of the past ones. I mean, you've been in a lot of film and, and TV and, and I mean, publications and such. Yeah, it's, uh, I've, I've done a, a little bit of, of not really everything, but uh, I, I'm getting there. So I'm, I'm getting my bucket list all kind of checked off, but uh, I've been in several different productions. Um, some are more kind of artistic, small projects. Some are for the museum that I work at. Some are for uh, filmmakers that are, you know, doing a privately funded film. I got to be in a couple of Hollywood films, which has been interesting. Uh, but uh, there's a couple that are supposed to be released um, in the next year or two that hopefully aren't too bad. <laughs> um, but uh, I, it definitely opened my eyes because as someone who has come from working for the National Park Service doing quality interpretation and, and trying to convey stories of peoples and cultures and, and history uh, to a, an average visitor, it's a totally different world when you go into the film industry. Um, and there might be a story that, you know, a script that's well-written or, you know, maybe has some elements that are lacking, but the whole uh, baseline, it's still for profit for entertainment. Um, and so they're willing to bend some of the truths or the facts into, well, you know, we'll just segue into this scene because we want to have this really cool chase or what, something like that. Or um, there's also so much that they are focusing on. Um, I, I didn't realize how much effort went into it. And especially now that we have all this technology at our disposal, um, all of the art uh, and or the artistic license involved in like getting all the different angles, the uh, lighting, the different shots. Um, it's, it's amazing what's involved. And honestly, I'm, I'm blown away. It's hard to believe that movies are actually made. The amount of work that's put into them and editing and all the extras and props and, and makeup and wardrobe and, and what have you. But um, so uh, there always keep that in mind that there might be that spark. I talked about watching Gettysburg at a young age. I'm sure that really intrigued lots of us growing up and, and just seeing that or being a part of it. Um, and uh, it's enough that, you know, it might not be 100% accurate, but it gives enough of an impression Heck, even the horse soldiers. I, that was my favorite movie growing up before I saw Gettysburg uh, with John Wayne. And there's a lot of in, um, inaccuracies in that one, but it's enough of a story. And it's just kind of that feel that it really captures you and it suckers you in. And then you want to learn more. And then, for example, you know, Grierson's Raid. You want to read more about Grierson's Raid. That was one heck of a road trip for those guys. Um, and so, you know, you read more books about it and you, you know, Google it now uh, and uh, see what comes up. And there's a lot of different ways that you can delve into it. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm a lot of the same way um, when it comes to, you know, seeing the movie Gettysburg for the first time. I mean, I was just completely um, blown away. And I believe even um, one of the people that was at the uh, Fort Casper event with us was one of the extras in that. And he, he talked uh -huh. about that for a while of just, I mean, how hot it was, but I mean, just the fact that it was such a monumental project to be a part of, because it was, I think at that time, it was one of the bigger type, I mean, um, movies. That it's a really on. large scale film, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess if I were to look back, I mean, it might not be like a Cecil B. DeMille type film where there's you know these massive you know Egyptian sets or like a John Ford movie I mean like you think of Longest Day I mean 
think of all the equipment and every, you know, the actors that were put into that venture. But I mean, for us at that time, you're absolutely right that it just, it, it, it ignites that, uh, well, if I'm going to use the a quote from Gettysburg, it's that divine spark. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I even remember, and I've shared this before on here um, in our first episode that we did, that all it took for me was a, a Civil War book in like the third grade. And then you, you see the movie Gettysburg and it just really kind of goes from there. Plus my grandfather was really involved wanting to you know, help that spark with me and learning about even just local history. So now I'm kind of like the the family historian if people have questions about abandoned farmsteads and everything else. I mean, it's, you know, I'm the guy that it falls on, which I don't mind at all. Um, yeah. But what was, uh, you were working on a project here just re uh, recently. And I mean, if, if you're under any contract stuff, I mean, let me know if you can't disclose anything or not. But I mean, you were a uh, I can't remember, you were doing something more uh, fur trade? Yeah, uh, we were working on a film that was, um, uh, it's going to be for television, um, a several part series in the next couple years. And it's basically about um, uh, various important figures during the fur trade and the exploration, early exploration of the American West. And so uh, I got to be an extra and do all the background stuff and basically got to, you know, be in the in camp and pick up a bucket, walk in the background to the other end of camp, set it down, look at some pelts that are hanging there and go, hmm, yes, that's a dead beaver. And then walk to the other end of camp and, and then redo it, you know, cut, reset, back to one. And so that was uh, an adventure in itself. But, but um, we, I got to work with some great guys, uh, a lot of the AMM guys, um, I, or maybe not a lot, a handful of them of really good quality guys. I uh, got to camp out with them a little bit and, um, and other people got to see Neil, uh, again. Um, yeah. so that was pretty neat and, and, uh, make some new acquaintances as well. Um, but, uh, we just were, we're going to have an adventure and we were just, if anything, worst case scenario, we get paid to camp out and just hang out next to the river. Uh, but man, they worked our butts off. We did uh, long days, about 12 hour days. And, um, we were exhausted by the time we finally got a weekend. Yeah. I mean, you, you've put up amazing pictures on your Facebook from some of those, I mean, the sets for like the one you just talked about. And then even, uh, um, I don't know when it's coming out yet. I don't know if I know last, the, the past year really set it behind, but we were talking about Miles O'Hara. You were also in one uh, depicting a lot of the events uh, surrounding the battle of Little Bighorn, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, that one, it's it's kind of nice being a, a relatively local to the area and uh, having connections with the cavalry school that they have there. And uh, since they have the horses and most of the, the you know, good equipment and, and they're working on drill and learn and most everyone there knows how to ride there or at least are in the process of learning and getting better. Um, they were using them as a lot of the extras for this docudrama that was being filmed. Uh, and so uh, it's, I guess it's all in who you know. I happen to know the right people, and I and I applied and said, hey, you know, I'd be willing to to fulfill one of these roles. And unfortunately, due to work, I could only get like a weekend in, um, maybe a, an ex, a, an extended long weekend, um, take a couple of days off from or whatnot, because it's really difficult for us in the summer months to get away because that's our busiest time of year with all the tourists going through. Okay. And so I can only take so much off. Um, but, uh, I said, Hey, you know, I've got the gear and, and, uh, 
I'm willing to do a speaking role. What can you have me do? And so I somehow managed to land the role of Sergeant Miles O'Hara, who was, if you're not familiar with him, um, the first casualty in the Battle of the Little Bighorn um, in the Valley, Valley fight with Reno. Um, and uh, it, it's really cool because I read into it and I've already read a, a lot about the Little Bighorn beforehand. Um, and uh, he was found, um, his body was found up at the Reno Benteen entrenchment area up on the hill. So somehow he was, I think, mortally wounded in the valley and then was dragged or somehow uh, moved across the river. He died over there. Of course, there's no proof of it or uh, that I have found. Uh, it's all hearsay. But they did find his body buried up at the entrenchment area up on the hill uh, when they were doing the archaeology of the site back in the 1980s, I believe. Uh, and so they reconstructed his face and they matched it up and um, they actually have a reconstruction of Miles O'Hara's face in the visitor center at the uh, Little Bighorn um, at the museum there with the Park mm -hmm. Service. Um, so that was pretty cool and uh, it made it a lot more real. And so I tried to research a little more um, about his background and, and what went on, but um, it was it was a neat little project. And then uh, <laughs> It was kind of funny because we were just kind of hanging out in camp and the weather that there was just these constant Montana storms just rolling in. Yeah. And uh, we, were, we were trying to shoot in between in good lighting uh, and in between storms for like a 10 minute interval. We managed to like dart out and film this scene uh, where I get hit. And um, so we had a skirmish line and everyone's kind of going crazy shooting in the background. And then no one really instructed me, at least from what I remember. It was just like, okay, so you're going to take your hit and then do your line, my one, my death line, and then everyone, you know, will fall back like they're going to the horses. And um, then I, you know, have my death scene and then it cuts to the next scene. Um, so that was kind of cool. But um, <laughs> I even YouTubed uh, as much as I could, like, okay, if he's shot in the chest, what does a sucking chest wound sound like? And uh, I got a lot of bad search results for like how to treat a sucking chest wound, which was fascinating to read about in itself and, and watch videos on. But I want to hear what the sound effects are like so that I can try to imitate that if I'm shot in the chest and try to do a good portrayal of that. So it was probably not my best job. Uh, I, I maybe now in hindsight, I probably would have done it differently, but it was a pretty neat little scene. I hope you didn't go on uh, WebMD because I mean WebMD will probably just tell you no different than it was in the eight, in 1876. You're going to die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's a goner. Well, in in my favorite part of the clip, I mean, people will watch the film eventually, hopefully, and 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 watch this little section. But uh, Austin Haney, uh, a good friend of mine um, from up in Montana, um, he's down at Bent's Fort right now, actually, as a seasonal. So he got real lucky. Um, but uh, he was yeah, an extra very, very for that lucky. same. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he, he was an extra that was supposed to be uh, the soldier that was my buddy. And so um, his line was something like, you know, oh, we have to fall back to the horses and O'Hara, come on, we got to go. And then I get hit. And then he's kind of shocked that I got hit. And then the guy who's playing First Sergeant John Ryan basically uh, grabs him and like throws him backward. And he's like, leave him, he's gone. <laughs> and Austin in this film clip is so shocked. The guy grabbed him by the shirt and flung him 
Uh, and so it looks pretty good. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I mean, it, I, I wouldn't want to get in any copyright trouble. I mean, I'd love to like yeah, yeah. share it right now because it's only like about a one one minute, 10 second clip, I think. I mean, give or take. Um, but I mean, for, for those uh, that might not be familiar with um, some of these uh, films, like especially the one we're talking about where you portray uh, uh, Miles O'Hara. I mean, what's the name of the the film and, and kind of who produced it and some of the efforts that kind of came into that? Oh, gosh. Um, I know Chris Hofford is the director um, and the, one of the producers, I believe. Um, okay. Yeah, you caught me off guard on that one. Um, I don't know. I just had a good time for the weekend and went home. What's the name of the movie? The Custer's Strategy of Defeat. Okay. Yep. And that, that's, a, I believe that's a series of books too by Frederick Wagner, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was involved in, in um, consulting and, and writing the screenplay, I believe, okay. or, or at least parts of it, or as a reference for that. He's a, a pretty scholarly individual on the, the battle itself. So I even messaged him and was like, hey, what sort of stripes should I have on the trousers? Because historically, he would, had just been promoted from a corporal to a sergeant. And so I was just asking, like, should I have all sergeant stuff or you know, just a week before, that's not a lot of time to sew. So he had me, uh, he suggested that I do uh, sergeant chevrons with corporal stripes on the trousers. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, kind of that could be a neat little, little thing. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's even little details um, just in that, that, you know, small clip that you're in alone. Um, you know, you, you mentioned just, I mean, those small details that the general public might not know, like something as simple as uh, corporal stripes versus maybe having full-blown sergeant stripes, even though you have sergeant stripes on in that scene. Um, and for those that don't know, I mean, the the 7th Cavalry had been out roughly over a month by the time they got to the, the Little Bighorn or where the battle took place, but they were at Powder River for a certain amount of time where they kind of, you know, they got some resupply, they got a little bit of R&R. &R. I mean, there's even um, documentation where some of the officers were even fishing, you know, uh -huh. in, in the river and such. But I mean, in that clip alone, I mean, John Ryan's depicted wearing a straw hat and straw hats were issued, or at least they were procured from the sutlers there at Powder River. Uh -huh. So I mean, I mean, kudos to you guys, like, you know, for, for those of us that, you know, are really in the field, like, you know, we I mean, we all do it, you know, we all nitpick scenes and movies. I mean, it's to the point my, my wife won't even watch any, any, any of those things with me anymore because it's just like, well, that rifle's wrong or that or that or that, you know. And it, It's even worse when you work with birds and your history nut because we'll be watching all the old westerns and I'll see a big bird of prey flying overhead and you hear that ee! you know that piercing cry and that's a red-tailed hawk but that doesn't match up with the bird you're seeing and then they go to the next scene and it's like oh my god that is an 1860s uniform that is definitely not for this era you know and the saddle is like an 1880s and the firearm is an 1870s so it's a nightmare well okay so so you're talking about that like i just got in a weird it came up on Hulu here the other night and I need, you know, I, I need something to watch at night that just like, I, I don't have to think a lot. And uh -huh. 
I mean, I'll admit sometimes I watch like, you know, Skinwalker Ranch, like on History Channel, like it's just kind of hokey. I just like just watch these guys do their thing. But I got back into a thing watching Westerns again, like uh-huh. I mean, El Dorado and Rio Bravo, like two movies that literally have the same plot line. Yeah. Different actors, like different, like, you know, you got Dean Martin on one side, Robert Mitchum on the other. But then. I mean, the same thing like saddles. I mean, they got 1890s firearms that they're talking about like right after the war. I think in like El Dorado, the guy, the character Bull actually has a Colt revolving carbine, which would be accurate. I yeah. mean, and he's probably about the most legit guy in there because he has a, a squared CSA buckle, which I mean, obviously was more, you know, prevalent with Western units during the war. Like, so yeah, you pick, mm-hmm. I mean, I pick little things apart, but then again, like I try to remind myself like, I'm just watching the Duke. Like I'm just going to watch the Duke. <laughs> but, but you do more research and even, you know, of, of 1940s, 50s, 60s film, a lot of the uh, wardrobe department is still using old military surplus that are originals from the 1880s. So technically it is accurate, but you have to know what you're looking at too. And so kind of looping back, the really cool thing that I enjoyed uh, working on that little Bighorn project was that we all, pretty much everyone involved directly was passionate about the history and we were all very well read on it uh, and it was privately funded. So we, with direction from the, uh, um, the crew and, and of course the director, um, we were able to recreate these really accurate scenes or as close as we could get to them within reason uh, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes corners are cut, but for the most part, as, as far as films go, I think it's going to be a, a really successful one as far as historians like us kind of, or armchair historians, uh, being able to look at this and go, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. They got that right. Um, but then there are other elements where like Hollywood um, in, in general these people don't necessarily like reading about history. Their job is to provide these types of clothes for this particular film. And so um, sometimes those corners that are cut swing really wide um, and maybe the wardrobe department has no idea what an authentic um, uniform for the cavalry in the 1860s, uh, say 1867, would look like. Um, they just think, oh yeah, this will be great for the cavalry. Why don't we give you one of these when it's not even the right item in the first place, just as an example. Um, and so it, it's, it, it veers away from the interpretation and it's entertainment. Um, so uh, looping back, I don't, I don't know how long we have left, but um, I wanted to share something that I was always um, intrigued in and in, in learning about. And so when I was uh, working for the National Park Service, and then even now um, doing what I do, educating about wildlife, a lot of the roots that are of interpretation that I utilize are founded in uh, Freeman Tilden's six principles of interpretation. So I don't know if you're familiar with him, yep. um, but uh, I just wanted to share kind of bare minimum basics for you know, in layman's terms. Um, and so I, I'm a member of the National Association of Interpretation. Um, and they have these really amazing um, national conferences every year. 
whether it's virtual or in person or whatever, but um, they're really, really amazing people. And it, it brings all different sorts of disciplines together. So there are people that are from zoos, aquariums, nature centers, wildlife parks. Uh, there are a lot of national park service, state historic site um, places. There are you know, small museums, large museums, everywhere in between. And all of these people that their job is to convey information to the public can meet and try to improve and learn about some of the more, um, oh, lost my train of thought there, uh, the uh, better techniques to convey this information and what is the newest, most efficient way to do that. Um, so when I first started with the National Park Service and many, especially the Park Service itself, they really like Freeman Tilden's uh, six principles of interpretation. And he wrote a book, if you're interested in learning more about it, it's called Interpreting Our Heritage. Um, it was written in 1957. Um, and uh, he wrote these down. And so these are kind of the really basic uh, bullet points, if you will, of what these six principles are in having good interpretation where, wherever you're gonna be found working at, whether it's a historic site or a zoo or a nature center uh, or a museum, these will uh, help guide you. And um, so anyway, the, the number one says it, um, it must relate. Um, so uh, interpretation has to be relevant to the visitor. Um, so they're there for a reason. So you're gonna be talking about whatever has brought these people to this, this place. Um, the second was don't rattle off facts. Interpretation isn't just information. Um, anyone can spout off information as it is, but, uh, and I guess a, a better example would be, um, I, I always liken it to when we kind of have a gear dump and you have a blanket out and every single item to show off and you're like, oh, well, this is my, you know, my mess kit over here. And, and these are what the rations would look like. And here's some extra arsenal packs that you would have tucked away. And here's an extra shirt and, and socks in case you need to change those if you get soaking wet or something. And um, it, that has its place, but you need to connect it. Um, it's, it's not just, you know, well, here's some information. So anyway, I, I'm, I digress, but don't rattle off facts. Interp isn't just information. Um, the third bullet point I have is interpretation is an art, uh, and that can actually combine several arts together. Um, in, and uh, I'm paraphrasing because I read them real quick before we got on here and, and started talking, but um, you can be looping in several different disciplines, whether it's archaeology, uh, history, art, um, science, various sciences, uh, but interpretation is an art. Um, and it takes practice as well, in my opinion. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, four, your chief aim is not instruction, but provocation. So when you have a visitor that stops by, you're not supposed to just start off and like, okay, I'm gonna teach you how to do this, or I'm gonna teach you everything you need to know about this subject. Uh, a really good interpreter actually provokes that thought. And so it's, it's kind of neat. Once you get experienced enough and you, you feel comfortable with the material, you can leave these breadcrumbs and you can actually connect or hopefully allow that visitor the opportunity to start seeing potential connections with those breadcrumbs. And then all of a sudden, what's the most rewarding experience is when the visitor puts it together and you get this, you know, ding, you know, oh, okay, 
Now I understand why this particular site object or whatever we're talking about is so important. And this is why I should care. And, you know, wow, that I learned something today. So that's always really cool. Um, number five, be, uh, oh, excuse me, um, present the whole rather than the part. So don't just talk about, you know, a really, really nice niche uh, subject. Um, make sure that at least at the beginning and the ending of maybe a really fine tuned subject that you really are excited to share about, you loop it into a larger narrative so that it has a little more context. You're not just, you know, floating about, you know, well, this is how buttons were made in the uh, 19th century. Uh, you, you loop it into a larger narrative and why this may have been important to uh, certain peoples involved in this process or the uh, industry as a whole things like that. You want to have a larger scale picture that you're looping everything back into or allowing them to make that connection with. Um, and the last one is make sure that your program is appropriate to your age group, uh, because what you say to a group of adults is completely different to what you're going to say to a group of, you know, children. Um, for example, if, if there's a lot of children. And so you're constantly trying to adjust. Now, one of the things that um, he specifies about that is that you're not just supposed to dumb it down. Um, you know, it's because you lose a lot of the insignificance of, of your material. And so um, he always said that uh, you have to cater it toward your specific age group and your audience and uh, make sure that um, it, it is, yeah, it just, it makes sense to them um, in their own way kind of petered off there. That wasn't the greatest. But anyway, uh, those are the six main principles. Um, and uh, they might be a little dated. And there's a lot of new information and new books out there. But um, I'm a little biased just because I learned it when I worked for the National Park Service. And that's uh, a lot of those um, Park Service staff, they still really like looking back and, and reading that book. That's a really good suggested reading for park staff that are involved in, in direct contact and educating the public. And I mean, just uh, for for the general public, I mean, you can get this book on Amazon. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's out there. So it's not like, you know, you have to be in the secret squirrel club of, you know, living history interpretation within the National Park Service or, you know, the state or anything like that. Like, if somebody's interested in this stuff, and I mean, like you said, you you use this even on the wildlife side. I mean, there's interpretation is not just solely just you know, putting on clothes and, and talking, to, you know, historical clothes and talking to the public, like it, it covers uh -huh. a wide, wide array. I mean, somebody can, you know, the IT guy in your office can do an interpretation of something. I mean, it, it, it all comes down to, I mean, we're, we're essentially like subject matter experts um, in our own way. I mean, some of us might not have, you know, the, the doctorate degree or everything else, but I mean, really like when you're doing the movie sets, I mean, you're really in your own way, you're also a tech advisor at the same time, uh -huh. essentially. I mean, I know you were like uh, with, with the Custer's strategy of defeat film. Um, I mean, I, I know cinnamon isn't probably the most <laughs> authentic thing out there. Um, for those that don't know, I mean, you were what? You were covered in cinnamon to give like more of like a sunburn appearance, I think. Well, yeah, so we provided our own wardrobe for the most part uh, <laughs> and uh, so in order to make it easier for us cleaning and because we don't always want to have, you know, this Hollywood, you know, fake dirt grit, 
rubbed into uniforms and stuff all the time. And I mean, might add to it, you never know, use real dirt. It's easier to clean anyway. But yeah. um, what they did for the movies is they used cinnamon. It was cheap and you get that reddish color so that in the way the cameras uh, are adjusted and the lighting, it looks like it's just dirt. Um, it doesn't look as red. And so what they would do before every take, they would have a little cinnamon duster and you just kind of dust the hat and the shoulders and just kind of pat it down a little bit. And so we would go everywhere just smelling of cinnamon. So uh, did, did Fort Blakely, the, la the latest Fort Blakely event, finally wash all this, the cinnamon off your uniform? <laughs> uh, parts of it. But yeah, yeah, that was, that was I, yeah, actually, those were the same trousers that I had for that film shoot. So yeah, definitely clean those trousers out. <laughs> so, so for those that don't know, um, <clears throat> I know some people like at my office, and I mean, those of us that do enough of these things, um, Brandon, I went to my first uh, um, authentic campaigner or like 40 rounds event where it's, you know, pretty progressive back in the 2017. We, we went and endured a lot of rain, but we, we were a part of the, uh, the uh, the scenario was the Battle of Wahatchee, kind of focusing around the Chattanooga campaign in 1863. Um, and I mean, you've done a lot of the 150th events. I've shared stories with other people like, uh, um, well, I was actually with a few guys at uh, Last Letter Home that you might know, uh, like Chad Johnson and some of those uh, guys that were at the uh, 150th of Fredericksburg. Oh, okay, cool. So, I mean, for those that don't know, Brandon Lewis also, I mean, well, you can tell it. I mean, about crossing the Rappahannock. I mean, you've always shared that yeah. as one of your more historical, like accurate moments that you really take away from things. That was uh, one of my favorite for the 150th cycles uh, uh, or cycle. Um, we went to Fredericksburg and we got to be some of the few guys that were lucky enough to cross the Rappahannock in the exact same spot in pontoon boats. And we got to do this amphibious landing and kind of secure the far shore. And historically, that was while the engineers were building a pontoon bridge and the Mississippi sharpshooters that were in the buildings and kind of holding Fredericksburg were just plinking away at them. And so they needed uh, some volunteers to move across the, the, uh, the Rappahannock and basically get a little buffer zone on the far shore. And so that's what our unit was portraying. And that was always going to be one of my coolest reenactor moments. Uh, and uh, then we got to go fighting in the streets and work way up. And then we got to go to Mari's Heights and get annihilated. So that was uh, an, an interesting weekend. But yeah, always one of my favorites. I, uh, I took a, I, I don't know if I don't, I don't even think I've told you this. So when I, when I shared uh, some pictures from Last Letter Home here a couple of weeks ago out in Western Indiana, um, I put in there in quotes, hey, Johnny, want to trade? And I mean, we march into the area. Well, it's about, you know, it's dark and the cannons are going off and um, they tell us to just start digging in. Well, on the drive out there, Casey had the uh, history of the 24th Wisconsin and was just reading through this on the way. So like, we were just absorbing all this information. And uh -huh. that was the norm was these units would march in to where their enemy was, you know, and by 1864, Sadly, it took them that long to figure out that bullets killed people by that time, but they would start digging in right away. And we found out from the Confederates later that they had a real takeaway of just like what a what an army sounds like moving at night and then actually entrenching into a position. Yeah. I mean, the axes going in the woods and just the clanking of tools. Um, 
but we were out in the rifle pits and I was out in the rifle pits with like Chad Johnson and uh, some other folks. And we were just, I mean, we had to sit out there for like four hours and I mean, the weather was good. It wasn't raining that much, but we get this idea of like, we should try to trade with the rebels. You know, what does anybody have? And I had a, an original May 8th, I believe, Harper's Weekly with me. And it was just, it was tattered. It was just beat to shit. And yeah. I hand it to Chad and Chad goes, you know, he, he yells, hey, Johnny, want to trade? And then a shot goes off and it's like, well, they don't want to trade right now. So we wait a little bit later. And sure enough, the two guys, they come together and they meet. And then a, a musket goes off. So we're yelling at him to come back. And all we got was like two hand rolled cigarettes. And then, then they yelled back from the line that uh, they said that the newspaper was two months old. And we're like, the whole Dallas operation took place in May of 1864. So we all yelled back, you guys can't read anyway. I mean, yeah. you know, just, just that whole element of, of just, you know, you get those takeaways, like even at Wahatchee. I mean, I remember we woke up at like, 4 30 or 5 in the morning and just you hear a bugle and just the sounds of an army camp with kind of a mist over that hayfield and it's like okay this must have been what a unit felt, you know was like on campaign um yeah and that that's really what we i think try to go for is you, you pick up some of those and i think you also like neil jones has said i mean you know you appreciate history by doing it and you yeah. definitely you appreciate it more and more when you get just those little moments like that and the cool thing about those little moments, they only last a couple of seconds and you're in the moment and you're going, wow, but you can use those in interpretation to add more oomph to your talk. And you can use that to better support it and be like, yeah, I wasn't in the exact same situation. Obviously there weren't live rounds being fired, but this is what I experienced. And it was the coolest thing. And you can link that in and, and hopefully inspire people by sharing those stories into that life narrative absolutely so hey we're kind of getting i mean we could do this all night i mean it, it's hard to believe like yeah like an hour can just roll by you know i mean time goes by fast when you're having fun and talking about things you enjoy um for those who might not not know enough maybe on living history interpretation i know you mentioned uh some books and some sources i mean what are some things you can think of off the top of your head and i'll be sure to put those like in the information when uh when I cut the audio for this. So this, this, this will also be available um, on wherever you get your podcasts from. I, I'll go in and do all that, but feel free to share a few sources for some people if they want to be interested, maybe in knowing a little bit more about living in history interpretation, even just the, the reference you just mentioned here a little bit ago again. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I strongly recommend people uh, look up the website for the National, excuse me, the National Association of Interpretation. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of really good references and, and resources there. Um, they have trainings and, and you can become certified as a certified interpretive guide. And they teach you all the various um, really good resources like Tilden's book that I talked about. Uh, and by the way, that is called Interpreting Our Heritage by Freeman Tilden. Um, but uh, they'll get you started. You can become a member and you can learn and go to these conferences and improve as an interpreter and better relate whatever subject you're talking about. And it helps as a, a better public speaker, no matter who you are anyway. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's skills you definitely can take into, you know, the real world. Um, I know it's made me even better just in, in my current job with trying to do a little more 
um, you know, slowing down a little bit and, and doing a little more research on things once in a while. So it definitely, you're absolutely right. It, it helps out a lot. So Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the past less traveled. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing. Just like I said, we could go on for hours. I think I definitely will need to have you come on again where we can maybe talk a little bit more about, I mean, just the, the numerous, you know, groups and, and, uh, you know, groups that you're living history groups that you're a part of, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Sure. Um, yeah, so, I'd love to anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I mean, like I said, I, I really appreciate you coming on and doing it. So, um, I'll, uh, I'll be ending the recording here pretty soon. I mean, for those that, uh, might be just hearing this, uh, maybe for the first time when we do the podcast, we're also uh, doing this on live. So you can go to our, our Facebook page at the past less traveled with two L's and you can go ahead and actually, uh, see my face, which is made just for radio, um, and see us sitting here talking about history. So, uh, thanks, Brandon. Thanks again for coming on. And I'm Brandon Delvo for The Past Less Traveled. And who knows, maybe in 100 years, somebody could be reading about your good or bad decisions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Past Less Traveled. We love our listeners. So if you'd like to hear more episodes, feel free to subscribe or follow The Past Less Traveled on whatever platform you enjoy your podcasts on. Also like us on Facebook at Past Less Traveled with two L's or Instagram at Past Less Traveled. And yes, we are on Twitter at Past Less Traveled, the number one. If you have someone or something in mind that we should talk about for an episode, feel free to send us an email at pastlesstraveled at gmail.com. Thank you, and we look forward to giving you more great history content in the future. Thank you.